thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at this system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about. Him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. In five, four. The evil has gone. Hello, welcome back everyone to Grub Stakers. Uh, I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm joined by Yogi Polywell, Andy Palmer. And we have a bit of a different episode today. Uh, we're not covering a billionaire, but we are covering one of the premier billionaire factories. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a business school. It's Columbia Business School. That's right. Before we get into it, I just want to say the results uh, from Iowa are in, and uh, I, I just want to congratulate Rob Blagojevich for <laughs> pulling it out. I didn't even know he was running, but he knocked it out of the park. Also, Delaney, solid third place. Solid third place for Delaney, and and the Super Bowl result, everyone had fun. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're also joined today, actually, by my good friend, Stephanie. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on, you guys. Yep. Welcome. Thank you for being on. Um, she's a student, actually, at Columbia University Business School, and she's going to help us kind of give us the inside scoop. That's right. We got a mole on, on this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> we have someone on the inside. Oh, don't like like gas me up to be <laughs> there's a lot of pressure guys <laughs> no these like i mean business schools in general though are sort of like the the incubation chamber for a lot of the future capitalists of the world and it's important to know how they operate yeah and so we're we're hoping we can dig into some of the the culture of them that you wouldn't you wouldn't really learn from from say Columbia University's uh, YouTube channel. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like Personally, I don't know much about uh, Columbia University Business School, but I do know that uh, Columbia is home to uh, the man who has made probably the most lucrative career you can imagine about a made-up science, Brian Greene, um, and his, his uh, devotion to string theory. Uh, before this, I was, I was playing a, a TED talk of him talking about string theory in 2005. And um, since that TED talk, 15 years later, there is exactly as much evidence for string theory, uh, which is zero. Oh. And uh, he's <laughs> he's not some. There is no evidence. There isn't even it's uh, the the lo- there's kind of a lower level theory called supersymmetry. And there isn't even evidence for that. Uh they what about just regular symmetry there is regular symmetry <laughs> i remember i watched um this is what kind of a nerd i am is i watched the announcement of the higgs boson um uh at like it was like 2 a.m right where i was um and they did this press conference uh with one of the lead physicists and you know she's really psyched they have found the higgs boson and one of the journalists is like so have you guys found any evidence for supersymmetry and she just gets this like really annoyed look <laughs> on her face and she's like no no evidence for supersymmetry yeah and uh, also according to four theory fourth billionaire list there are at least 19 billionaires that came out of columbia robert agastinelli Louis Bacon, Lynn Blavatnik, Peter Buck, Warren Buffett, Leon G. Cooperman, Noam Goetzman, Robert Kraft, 
of uh, I think uh, Patriots fame. Henry Kravis, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Lafrockin family. I don't know why they added and family on that one. Daniel Loeb, David Sansbury, Thomas Sandel, Shindong Bin, Jerry Spire, Henry Suwika, S. Robson Walton, Daniel Ziff, and Dirk Ziff. <laughs> so, drink theory. Dirk. <laughs> A couple of those people we've covered, like right. Daniel Labe, mm-hmm. Warren Buffett, uh, Daniel Labe of Third Point Capital fame. Uh, yeah, this has been like, so this is where they sort of first cut their teeth on like well the ideology of string theory (laughs) not of string theory (laughs) but of capitalism right which is a little bit like string theory no uh and that it's um yo enough talk about string theory guys (laughs) string theory there's too much (laughs) we're losing listeners every second (laughs) (laughs) this is where they serve it's like capitalism and that it works (laughs) in theory yeah, it doesn't even work on paper, does no. it? Not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they get their they sort of business schools are often where these billionaires first cut their teeth at pretending to know how businesses are really run. Mm-hmm. These are the staging grounds quite often uh, for, well, among them the sons and daughters of wealth to meet, collaborate, maybe even learn a thing or two about discounted cash flows. Maybe somewhere in between, <laughs> but just as importantly, though, uh, if not more so, this is where they become like fully sort of initiated into the uh, ideology of capitalism and the bondholder class, and that is if they haven't already. And I guess like I'll just pass it off to Stephanie a bit. And uh, so you're midway through your course at Columbia University. Yeah, so um, it's two years, and I'm halfway done with my first year. So I just finished my first semester, and I'm a week into my second semester. And I, yes, I do know how to do a discounted fa- cash flow now. It's, <laughs> it's very That's useful. That's good. That'll come in handy. For sure. Oh, for sure. You know. Does that mean less cash flow? actually yes like the first lecture the the professor made it very clear that like money starts getting devalued like he was like oh if you have a hundred dollars in your mattress and then uh you give it time that hundred dollars is going to go down in value so discount for time yada yada but like it's very hard to take it seriously when you're like oh this is all fake we're all just (laughs) making it up doesn't what does it matter i had an econ professor in my undergrad when I was like thinking about maybe applying to business school later mm-hmm. and he was like oh discounted cash flow school <laughs> as as if to say like they uh that's like the one serious topic that they cover and then the rest is meeting people who will help you start your business later right, right. or like making family connections or whatever right being like, someone who has a rich uncle yeah, it's not that's not technically true, I guess. You're studying so they have you studying statistics and um I mean I willingly signed analytics. up for yeah, I willingly signed up for like more data analytics classes, but you could take like a lot of more kind of strategy, uh qualitative fluffy classes, but uh I really disliked my strategy class because oh, really? because a lot of these case studies you have to take on the other side um you have to think like the ceo or like the manager right. and it's very uncomfortable when you read like a paragraph that's like oh and there have been labor disputes but you have to be the one to like 
<laughs> and then again yeah, like there was one on walmart and like here's a whole section about all this controversy walmart had but which direction do you think we should take walmart from a, yeah, it's, just, it's it's sort of like rome total war where they're like oh there's a slave uprising you better go kill them all <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, was gonna, I was gonna say it's like they do role-playing like you're robert s walton the way the laborers are massing outside of your window <laughs> um they're chanting $15 an hour now. What do you do? <laughs> do you give up your yacht to pay them the rightful wage, or do you hoard more cash? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, like, useful. I, I, I try to tell myself, like, this is good because it's, like, you know, I got to get into the mindset to be able to figure out how to take them down. But it's still, like, really weird that it, it does seem a lot like training materials and, like, this is the mentality you need to have. Mm -hmm. Do you find people in your classes that are more gravitating towards the material and instead of being like, this is kind of odd, like like a, I would argue a rational person would look at it, that some people are like, oh, wow, this is how I move up past the ranks. Hmm. I mean, actually, my class isn't like very outspoken in their political views. Um, actually, I, I feel like there's a handful of like disenchanted people, like mm -hmm. people who used to be from nonprofits or some other uh, sector that's more woo woo or whatever <laughs> right. but then like you know the industry kind of chewed them up and spat them back out and now they're like okay i'll just go to business school and make money it doesn't matter right right um there's also people who like i would say they're very well-meaning like they're mm -hmm. like i want to help people the best way to help people is by making a good product i'm going to go into product management mm -hmm. i want to help people the best way to help people is finding the best economic policy i'm gonna become an economics and work right. in dc like like stuff like that gotcha yeah that makes sense yeah actually one thing one thing that i found uh or that i realized at my last job was that like while we uh, there was sort of a um a labor dispute in a way of um like the management was finding a way to kind of uh screw a bunch of us out of getting a state mandated raise and uh one thing i realized while i was like going through this was like Oh, these people, because they had a very like strong IV pedigree, and I realized like, oh, these people have kind of been trained in how to uh, undermine these kinds of disputes. And I was wondering like, if you see anything like in that um, uh, in that vein, where maybe it's not explicitly stated, you know, how you kind of try to have to undermine, um, uh, you know, if someone is. Uh, you know, agitating or maybe starting to form uh, a collective bargaining unit. But I, I was wondering if, if maybe there there are like, um, if they do cover kind of like strategies for situations like that in, um, in running a business. Actually, um, I feel like really down to the wire labor dispute unionizing stuff isn't touched on that much during class. What we really talk about a lot is like kind of the more oh how does this affect the business what do we need to move around what does the accounting reflect like those those sorts of mechanics although okay. i do remember there was a very interesting case study we had to do in uh microeconomics mm -hmm. and it was about like a labor dispute in gm and then my classmates and i we were in a team and we were looking over the financial statements and someone was like oh yeah it seems like a lot of their uh, capital is going towards these sorts of like unionized workers. That's the, uh, they have a very high salary. And I like kind of offhandedly say like, oh yeah, you know, that's 
uh, unions are great. It's great for like, you know, if you want better pay. Yeah. And then like one of my classmates pauses and then just goes like, I disagree in this really, <laughs> really, really serious voice. And I'm like, okay, well, uh, maybe we'll talk it over drinks one day, but uh, right, right. we're going to move on now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the same classmate that like we were talking about Uber and mm -hmm. like the, we were actually talking about the morality of like surge pricing and if it's necessary. Um, unfortunately, the professor came to the conclusion that like, oh, you know, if we do not do surge pricing and everybody, you know, gets a low rate, then too many people are going to crowd the market and Uber drivers won't be able what? to provide. Yeah, that was the explanation. It's like, you keep the, then there's going to be secondary markets and so on and so forth. And then I was like, but, you know, it's still, you're still leaving someone out in the cold and right. like, a, you know, that's not good. And then the same classmate turned to me and was like, I disagree with everything you just said. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I think he's just very cynical. Like he's told me before, oh, I wish we could live in a world where it's all rainbows and puppies forever, but it's just, it doesn't work like that, sweetie. And, wow, yeah. what a condescending asshole. Yeah. Uh, I don't know this person, but fuck that person. Uh, I wish we could have labor laws, but you know, this, yeah. this is a real right. world. I guess I'm going to have to abandon my platform of rainbows and puppies forever. <laughs> I think it's just he bought into the narrative of like, oh, like Bernie wants to give everyone a unicorn, you right, know, like that right, kind of right, line. Right. So uh, I think, again, I put him in the category of like he means well. Like sure. he really does think this is the best way. I don't want to actively make things worse. No, of course. And I, I am I'm yeah. being condescending because I think that anytime <laughs> a person is like, when anytime people try and say that things can't be perfect by adding uh, things that are created by nature like puppies and rainbows I'm like what do you that, those things already existed without yeah. any laws or any rules so like, like to Bernie's point to, to what to no to their idea of what Bernie's point was um, we could all add ponies yeah. No. I, no. I mean, I it's conceivable. Yeah. I think so, like, it's, it's a it's a question of bio. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem of biophysical resources being directed by currency. <laughs> That's so That's true. Yeah. As long as you have the productive capacity to secure the ponies for everyone, then there won't be inflation. You can just do it. I think. Uh, yeah. The imagination is somewhat limited in business school. Like that makes sense. Sometimes we push the envelope a little bit by like talking about oh what if we had nationalized healthcare what would that look like but then you know but then like it's very hand waved off like oh no 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 but then this would happen and that would happen and so on and right, so forth right Jedi mind trick <laughs> these aren't the healthcare you're looking for oh gosh <laughs> it, it brings to mind uh, uh, was it Mark Fisher's book uh, Capitalist Realism with mm. the idea that it's like you know this capitalism is brutal it's um or it, it, it's kind of this ideology that people adopt where it's like, yeah, the system is, is brutal, it's hard, but it's the best system we can have. And there isn't an alternative, you know, or I guess the Thatcher thing. And it, it also bring, comes uh, brings to mind like things that Noam Chomsky says about how um, uh, propaganda tends to work uh, where the, the ruling class will kind of in, instill this propaganda in people where they... Um, they they you know try to to make people believe that this is the best system that it doesn't typically work in the lower classes but the uh upper and uh managerial classes will tend to actually internalize it and people in uh schools like columbia business school those are the places where people are actually most receptive to this kind of propaganda of like mm -hmm. this is the only system there is no alternative yeah um 
it's it's very hard to put that out there because then people look at you like you're kind of speaking nonsense. Um, right, right. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but even like at least with with communism, at least it worked on paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like capitalism doesn't even work on paper. Yeah. <laughs> so you just have like okay, a guy gets to a guy gets to a deserted island but that has 100 people with he has a he has a pile of money mm-hmm. never mind where he got it sure <laughs> <laughs> they don't explain that step no and then no. they go straight into how you can um efficiently divide up the labor processes to make the best possible system through this like process of primitive accumulation just more Nash equilibriums, man. <laughs> yeah, I think they're very removed from like how things happen. Like uh, when we analyze, like, oh, what is the investment rate of building this new building? They don't think about okay, what about like the exploited labor that goes into making this building? Right. How many? How much real estate do they need to seize up? Could there have been like a homeless shelter there? All that stuff. But then it's just you know on paper, it's just like calculate the you know, NPV of what Mm. happens if you invest in this. Do you think that blind spot exists because in terms of learning the skill of business to uh, calculate in the exploited labor and the just general uh, misdeeds, uh, capitalism breeds, is it it would overcomplicate the learning process. So they cut that stuff out to make it so that when you're learning about business that it's like, we're just going to teach you one plus one, and then we're going to deal with the fact that one is is a group of people that are being exploited. I, I mean, I, I know that that analogy doesn't really uh, transfer, yeah, I, but you, you, you see the point <laughs> I'm trying to make here. It's that like to teach business, they're trying to cut out the what they would call the fluff variables, which is human lives being lost and uh, exploited to make the profit itself. Um, yeah, that definitely seems like a viable, like, theory. I mean, I, I haven't given it much thought myself because, you know, they also swamp you with a lot of work. And sure, yeah. I think, honestly, thinking about all these implications and these, like, fake case studies, it, it would sort of emotionally wear you down. So maybe they do it for everybody's sanity. Or maybe people just aren't aware. I don't yeah. know. Maybe people just think, oh, yeah, we just have this sort of neutral ground. Um I, I forgot the term for it, but I think it's like the sort of a historical approach to history sometimes where people are like, oh, yeah, in America, there was like nothing. And then Columbus discovered <laughs> it. Like, like, So likewise, I think right. maybe in business, it's like that sort of like fake neutrality. Right. I think you're telling me that um, in one of your fluff classes, um, this contest should had... make your brain shit itself. Sorry. <laughs> people are asking for more drops. <laughs> In one of the fluff classes, fluff classes you were taking at, at a Columbia Business School, they put up a chart that, like, on the y-axis, it was, like, doing good. Oh, and gosh. then on the x-axis, <laughs> it was doing right. Yeah. Um, this was, actually, this was like, um, an orientation talk, actually. Not a full class, but they actually were thinking about it turning into a class. It's, like, uh, business in society or something like that. It's, like... It's sort of like the kind of liberal mindset where it's like, oh, we need to think about CSR and our responsibility. But they have this really weird chart that's like, so the y-axis is doing well and the x-axis is doing good. And at first they were like, you have to make trade-offs. That's how people thought back then. You had Milton Friedman and then, you know, Milton Friedman is problematic because then you get Martin Shkreli. 
So that's doing well. So places like uh, Walmart and so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. those like quote unquote bad companies, that's on the doing well axis. And then you have doing good. And that's like, you don't care about profit. And like, you know, your business might be struggling, but at least you're putting some good out into the world. So they use like Red Cross as an example. And then they were like, but the reason we're here at CBS is so we can find a way to kind of reconcile the two and do well and do good. And you know what the solution is? Microloans, because you get to make money, you know, for your business. It's it's profitable and it's good, but you're also doing good because you're giving people the capital they need to start their business. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I get that, like on concept, microloans are probably great, but it's like, aren't they super predatory and whatever? I don't know yeah. too much about it myself. I'm I'm not too well versed in that. There's industry. a there's actually a great Jackman piece about how they are predatory. Didn't they like give the someone his, a Nobel Prize for that too? They did. Yeah, they yeah. did. They gave someone a Nobel Prize, Peace Prize for running a, one of the large microloans. <laughs> micro Peace Prize from microloans? I think, right? What else would it be? Economics? But he wasn't an economist. He was just running a business. Oh. <laughs> but why would it be That's a Peace worse. Prize? Well, <laughs> let's look this up. <laughs> they claim, yeah, like. The claim is that it would alleviate poverty, and so... Yeah, I guess it's like, this is, again, like, their imagination is limited, so they think the best way we can help people is by integrating them into the system effectively. Right, right, right. Yeah. The Oh, yeah, Muhammad Yunus, he got the Nobel Prize. Which one? He was, uh, what? So he got the Peace Prize? Well, let me see. This is what really it? important. What Which type of prize he got? <laughs> I don't know, maybe yeah, it was, Nobel it was Peace the chemistry. Prize. Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, wow. Yeah. For founding Grameen Bank, which went on to uh, exacerbate inequality <laughs> in third world countries. I mean, peace. That's what that's all about, Stephen. I don't see what's wrong with peace, it. Peace. Pieces yeah. of a country. Wow. Uh, the next Nobel Peace Prize goes to the Soylent Green <laughs> Corporation for uh, ending world hunger. I, uh, no, I remember when micro lending was like in the New York Times and New York Magazine and all that as like the answer to inequality. Mm. They were specifically targeting, they wanted to get credit to um, minority groups within countries in particular so that they could start businesses. And what would happen is those groups, like women, women would get loans, and then men who controlled them through the patriarchal system of their country would then take part of the, the proceeds of the loan hmm. and then have the women repay, repay the full loan without any help from them. Wow. <laughs> um, really? Yes. That is so, like in communities that are full of all sorts of um, capitalistic predations, um, credit necessarily is not really the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I would argue that, like, country, it's been shown before that countries that have a higher incidence of small business startups are typically also third world countries. Hmm. So, like, having lots and lots of new companies start up is not necessarily an indicator that you're like lifting people up. One thing I think, because it, it is interesting how you talk about how a lot of the measures uh, in kind of the uh, uh, business mindset um, have to do with uh, incorporating, you're like uh, integrating people into the world economy. And one of the arguments that you'll hear a lot from uh, neoliberal types is that uh, that the kind of global capitalist order, the kind of end of history order has alleviated poverty um, according to this and that metric. And I was wondering if like you had any thoughts about um, the reality of that, whether there's any truth to that. 
um, in terms of, I, I don't know, <laughs> I, 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 that's a little out of left field. So if not, I mean, I definitely do not think poverty is going to be ending at the state we are now, uh, for sure. Um, and I mean, like, I, I do think like at the basis, nobody wants to say, oh, you know, screw all the people who are strapped and have low income. We don't care about you. It's like they do want to, they do want to care. It's just like, they just feel, I, I know I keep repeating this, but I think their imagination is just so limited that they mm. think this is the only way. And but I mean, there are some people I think who just straight up are like, "Well, like I got mine. I don't really know what to do with right. you." Yeah. Right. Then the only tool they have is like a hammer. So you know, <laughs> it looks like the problem's a nail. Yeah. And the hammer uh, of global finance. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, there's also a big worry about like, oh, does this mean that my money is going to be taken away? Mm -hmm. I mean, that that probably mm -hmm. is the root of anxiety of most like billionaires. They don't want their wealth to be taken away. Yeah, we haven't really talked about this on the show, but I think that like one thing I've always wanted to consider is like we look at hoarding random crap as a disease, but this level of wealth accumulation is some sort of hoarding branch disease. And I think the thing you mentioned about the anxiety of it being taken away from them, but a lot of times it's just points on a board to them at some point. Mm -hmm. Like the amount of wealth that uh, some of the top billionaires have they could lose, you know, ninety eight percent of it in their lives. Really, wouldn't change all that much. I mean, and sure, if if uh, like Bezos or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett went from a hundred plus billion to twenty five billion, like theoretically their lives are changed. But it's like, well, you can still live the way they live with twenty plus billion dollars. You know, I've been I've been thinking about like why these people are so psychotically opposed to uh, like Bernie Sanders' relatively mild proposals. Mm -hmm. Um, about their wealth because you know obviously their quality of life isn't going to drop and I, I think the real reason is they it, it's the only thing that they've pursued in their life and it's the only thing that gives them meaning mm -hmm. is you know winning on that scoreboard so if someone comes to take away your points um, and your whole life has just been spent you know trying to gain all those points you're right. going to fight tooth and nail well Warren Buffett uh, Columbia alumni Mm -hmm. famously said like yeah i mean that's one of his big motivations yeah it's like it's just his um, i i mean i'm not here he said like i'm not here to accumulate physical wealth at, at all really even though he kind of is i mean he has yeah um, funnily enough nine, he has nine houses so <laughs> funnily enough a running joke in the uh cbs community is that like buffett never donates back to us and we always have to thank <laughs> I don't know how true that is but if he actually doesn't donate back I would I'm kind of like what is wrong with you right. see her, um less okay Columbia Business School has an endowment as as of 2019 of 750 million which is the most for any business school wow um some Ivy schools have obviously a lot more for the whole university but not for their business school right and um, adding to that actually recently was, uh, someone we hope to cover pretty soon. Um, one of the co-founders of KKR, Henry Kravis. Um, so I love his music. <laughs> <laughs> Kravis. Kravis? No, it's, it's differently spelled, but it, it sounds a little bit like <laughs> Yeah. So you have like a lot of private equity money coming in to fund the place. Um, 
Oh yeah, during orientation, they gave us like, oh, you get a free backpack and you get a free water bottle. But the water bottle had like the Bane logo on it. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, are we being like groomed or something? Yeah. This is so weird. <laughs> it's funny because actually the people I was talking about earlier, my uh, former bosses were all from Bane. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like everybody wants to go for the elite companies. You have like Amazon coming in. Mm -hmm. Amazon had like five recruiting events separately really and it's very uncomfortable because i i'm aware of all the horrible stuff amazon does and everybody just is like oh i want to go they're so great stephanie are you going <laughs> and i'm like i i mean my excuse is like oh i'm not planning to go into tech or whatever sure, sure. but yeah i'm just like i kind of want to just like shake them and be like do you not see what they're doing what like mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I've got friends that I grew up with or that I went to school with, and uh, they all, they a good chunk of them work at Amazon. Basically, everyone I hated growing up, and I was like, I don't know why I hate this person now works at Amazon. And I'm like, oh, that's why. Their morals and values are bullshit, and who they are as human beings is uh, trash. And I was talking to a friend once about uh, one of them, and he was like, oh, why don't you, you like that person? I'm like, well, they work at Amazon. And he's like, well, is that really a problem? I'm like... It's not necessarily a problem that they work there, but the fact that they're proud of it is what I'm bothered by. <laughs> it's like, I don't, you know... Everyone, if you're just grudgingly working yeah, there. Yeah, everyone needs to work. I, so I'm not, you know, listen, I work at this company, Grubstakers LLC. I don't like it. I'm not proud of it, but... None of us are. I show up, you know. Is it the labor practices? <laughs> I think the abuse of the uh, people of color at this company <laughs> is certainly uh, hurting uh, the bottom line. Uh, no, but I mean, like, you know, some of them are doing uh, various tech positions, but a handful of them are actually like a good chunk of them are like, they just like run events for Amazon. So literally their job is just like, you know, every other day they've got a new celebrity that they're grooming for an event where they're talking to Amazon staff. So like there's a famous photo of uh, Lil Nas X, Jeff Bezos, and uh, I think it's Katy Perry. And in the background, one of my friends, uh, or one, a person I went to high school with, yeah, fuck it, uh, Olivia Obanesser, this dumbass uh, woman I went to high school with, who I think sucks at life and is a terrible person, yeah. is in the background of Drag that. her. Yeah, and it's like, you know, I don't give a fuck that you work at a corporation that's terrible, but when I see you in the background of a photo of a billionaire and you're giggly and smiley, part of me goes, you know what? You are the fucking problem because you're not literally going, hey, Bezos, uh, stop being a weirdo divorced dad that doesn't know how to live his life and is wearing Lil Nas X's jacket and fucking uh, give the money where it needs to go and stop stop breaking down cities for profit. Are you just mad that we couldn't get Lil Nas X and Katy Perry on the show? <sighs> I mean, you know how much I love Lil Nas X. I just... <laughs> His uh, work in improving uh, LGBTQ rights in the urban communities is something that nobody should deny. I thought you were going to say his work in improving his own song over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is disappointing to hear that he uh, hung out with Jeff Bezos, though. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm like, oh, man. I mean, I when like Bezos it. is paying you a couple of million to show up and do a song or two, you, you pal around with the boss. I mean, I'm not happy about that either, but I'm more mad at my <laughs> high school friend because <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, they suck. And they were mean to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's like Amazon also gives off this really good perception of charity too, mm -hmm. on top of like all the bad stuff. So I think like, like again, I, I think a lot of my classmates are well-meaning. I don't have any that I like hate, hate. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, so I think it's just they see that part, but maybe they're like, maybe they're like just unaware or they just don't want to acknowledge it because it is very uncomfortable. Like a, 
people are recruiting for Deloitte. And when I say I came from Deloitte, they're like, oh, can can you give me tips? And I'm like, oh, but they they worked with ICE. I don't know, guys. And, and like I try to hint at it, but then they're like, oh, but like they weren't really involved, you know. It right, was, um, right. We actually recovered. We covered a, a billionaire supporting Buttigieg, and Buttigieg got called out for working at McKinsey on a contract where he helped a supermarket in Canada um, increase their bread prices right. more than you would expect just from inflation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he fixed the. <laughs> Is it? Oh man, I love. I just love the direct, the delivery. Yeah, the dude's face so is just like like, stoic. You fix bread prices. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, first of all. Uh, I worked with a company that fixed bread prices. I had a client. Like yeah, first I of all, a, yeah. I was a consultant. Yeah, I had a client who wanted to fix bread <laughs> prices for his company. He just like described it. He tried to abstract yeah. away in the moment mm-hmm. in a way that I think um, other people who go on to have a career at Deloitte or something might necessarily do because they actually do feel kind of bad about it. Mm-hmm. An average person would. First of all, I had a client who uh, I consulted with, and they had death camps, uh, but I was not personally involved in the death camp creation (laughs) or the death squad creation. Um, uh, I think you should get your facts straight. Yeah, I mean, like, I was optimizing a business strategy, (laughs) so... Yeah. It's fine. I mean, uh, to the school's credit, well, to one of my professors' credit, my data analytics professor, he had a whole session about the dangers of data analytics when it's taken too far, quote unquote. And he talked about how McKinsey helped out with the sort of opioid crisis by mm-hmm. like working with the pharmas and being like, okay, based on our data, here's a strategy to push as much of your right. product as possible. And he's like, he's like, and human lives were lost because of that. So please be careful how you bring through your business practices. But then he kind of tempered it by saying like, you know, figuring out how to maximize profits and, uh, you know, uh, with price to like make your clothes that you sell is fine. But when it's like sure. pushing this. So I'm like, it, it's not totally perfect, but I really appreciate that professor for doing that. You yeah. know, at least he tries to start the conversation. You know, when you were mentioning that, like some of the business students might have a blind spot because it's uncomfortable to cover some of these things. Do you think that some of the professors, instead of uh, divulging truly the like reality of some of these things for their own job security, sometimes kind of coddle some of the information because if they're outright just being like, oh yeah, like, you know, in the case of what you were mentioning, like data analytics is used to abuse and kill people, whether it's opioids or clothes or what, whatever it is. I mean, if you speak that outlandishly, Columbia Business School is going to be like, okay, we, you can't work here anymore. You're literally tarnishing the brand. Oh yeah. I definitely think that could be an option. I, and, and like, uh, I think like my strategy professor had a session about Eli Lilly, which is like a pharmaceutical nonprofit, I think. And he said, he got a lot of bad feedback after that class oh, be- really? because he talked about like basically his thesis was like nonprofits run their stuff like any other business, which I agreed with. Mm-hmm. And he said like, you know, their strategy of like targeting, uh, keeping things domestic instead of expanding to Africa is because it falls in line with their, uh, what they want to put out an image to the world. So maybe it would have been more useful, but they did this because, and he showed like an interview with the, like a private interview with the Eli Lilly CEO. And they were like, yeah, we decided to go with this strategy because it fits in with the brand, blah, 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 blah. 
And I'm like, this is great. You know, it's、wow. like, it's cynical, but it's like people need to hear this. But apparently, at the end of class, he's like, and here's some. Notes I wrote down from other students who were like really mad about this, and they said stuff like, "Why would you say nonprofits are like that? You know, they're trying right, to get."、Yeah. And so it's like I think like, and he said like, and like I think this stuff is important, but like you know, obviously, I don't want to offend anyone by saying this. If you want to go into nonprofits, sure,、and、sure. So I think it is like probably potential backlash from maybe students and administration alike. Definitely. So so what was. Uh, I know it's a tangent, but what what was the Eli Lilly、um, strategy?、Um, oh gosh, it's been a while since I read the case, oh, but it, oh no, you're fine. I, I think it's like so they had the choice between like trying to fight this、uh, virus that was more prevalent in America or going to Africa to expand research into this other virus there, and they ended up picking the strategy of America because it looks more. Better in、sure. line with like their sort of strategic goals、right. and stuff like that.、Yeah. So it, it basically the point of the class was to show like nonprofits are you know not anything special. They're like other businesses,、right. and even that like rankled、mm-hmm. a few students. So we are、yeah, a charity, but we're not a charity. <laughs> yeah, we've covered plenty of charities that are basically just tax havens for the rich.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and like、uh, I've worked at one. Yeah.、Uh, um, Jim Simon's a billionaire recovered recently.、Uh, he's like,、um, in addition to being terrible, he actually had a nonprofit that was like focused on、um, math math education. So like he was a mathematician, and he said two billion, just two billion dollars would revolutionize math education in this country for public schools. And like, he's worth more than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And his company takes in more than that each year. And didn't they do like a tax fraud that would have、uh, given the public six billion、yes, something they, like that? Yeah, yeah, they avoided six point eight billion worth of taxes <laughs>、right. over ten years. So I mean, there's sort of like so many people we've covered, and I think sort of the ideology as you're explaining it to me in Columbia, Columbia Business School seems like they're just stuck in this liberal straight straitjacket <laughs> where they have they think that.、Um, The effects are like sure the effects are bad, but the cause is very good. <laughs> That's capitalism. Very, it's very evocative imagery, and I would say、uh, it's pretty accurate. So like your、um, like the chart you were describing that was、uh, had on one axis、um, doing well versus doing, doing good. good. Yeah. Like that that chart is like such a good sum summation, <laughs> I guess, of like.、Um, Like sort of the neoliberal、um, problem of optimization.、Mm-hmm. So, basically, I mean, the image I'm getting is that between those two axes, you have to sort of compute a gradient where you're like optimally altruistic, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so there's a trade-off between doing good and doing well. Okay, if you accept that, then there's like an efficient frontier <laughs>、yes. of like doing doing good things for humanity. Beyond、yeah. which is just like inefficient. Yeah, yeah, because it's like、um, I, I'm taking actually a nonprofits class right now, and a lot of the conversation is like, you know, how are we able to make our business sustainable while still sticking to our mission? You know, we need to balance、uh, mission stickiness, as they put it, with like the pull <laughs> of the market and so on. Yeah, I've been learning a lot of great fun buzzwords. It's, 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 <laughs> This is what I'm paying money for, learning all these fun buzzwords. Right, right. So you were going to ask about econ? 
Uh, yeah, related, sort of related to that general problem. Um, you're also taking some macroeconomics right now? Um, not right now, but last semester, yes, I took a macroeconomics course, or rather global economic environment. I think that was the official name. Okay. Um, you just like, a couple times you would bring up to me, like... <laughs> I would uh, complain to you a lot, yes. Some, some fun charts and diagrams <laughs> that your, your professor would uh, pull up for you. I'm just thinking about that liberal straight jacket, just trying to see the NASCAR designs that would be on that jacket, you know, <laughs> just every uh, corporation that seems to be uh, bombing countries and uh, profiting off the the labor conditions, just patches on that liberal straight jacket. I think Raytheon said that they're a leader in LGBT rights. Mm-hmm. They, they sponsored Yes, Pride they Pride. did. Yeah. <laughs> they Actually, they were rated, Raytheon was rated the best on LGBTQ rights or something like that from... Uh, <laughs> Well, that liberal straight jacket's a rainbow color. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's a huge part of it. I just remembered I was in, um, I think it was when uh, Yogi Sean and I had our old podcast. I, uh, we went to Washington, D.C. for a weekend and we went to the Air and Space Museum. And, you know, they one of the things they have is a drone. Mm-hmm. And very prominently on the front of the drone is the Raytheon logo. <laughs> Like, it, it's like, it, it's not enough to have a killing machine. You also have to put your logo right, right, right. prominently so they know what company yeah. made the killing machine. Right. Yeah, if, if your killing machine isn't branded, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, I learned this in marketing, you know, the more you have your product show up and have it associated with the brand name, the more people will think positively about it. So yeah. it's like a... Yeah. No, it's actually a smart mar- uh, marketing move. No, I, I can get behind it. <laughs> I remember I felt that way when, like, I, I don't know what I was watching, but it was, like, the fourth, I think it was at a movie theater, and you know how they do, like, 80 Coca-Cola commercials? <laughs> and I just remember being like, everyone knows Coke exists, and I know that they're showing me so I go buy a Coke, but, like, at no point has anyone in the last hundred years been like, hey, what's that uh, brown <laughs> sweet stuff? You know, it gives you diabetes, but it's sweet and got bubbles in it. I, it, it's so that like you know every now and then you'll think wait that'll kill me slowly and then they're like no Katy perry yeah seriously actually uh i know we're getting off topic but i was actually talking with my boyfriend the other day about um ads and mm-hmm. i was complaining about like oh my god i was so annoyed with uh ads on an app i have that i just paid the money for them to go away and he said i think that's how like advertising is nowadays it's like not oh we put this ad out so you would be tempted to buy the product it's like we put this out so that you would you would stop being inundated right right right. and maybe raytheon is doing that it's like if you pay us money we'll stop threatening you (laughs) (laughs) dark joke i'm sorry no no, it's great (laughs) so i guess in your macroeconomics class Mm. like uh, you'll have these presentations and a few of the slides you've shown me are like like one is just should the u.s adopt a universal basic income and you can respond either yes or no. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a poll. Like, you you take a poll for attendance, and people give their opinion and say, oh, this is why I voted yes. And I was like, I wish there was a third option that was, like, really long sentence that's like, wow, universal basic income hits on the good blah, blah, blah. Because right, right. I, I would have uh, picked that one where it's like, I do understand, I can get behind the idea, but I don't like why it's being implemented. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that like serves as a dual purpose to get, take attendance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. But um, I don't like how it, it's very like clean, yes or no. Especially because my econ professor started like arguing w- with people who wanted UBI. Mm-hmm. Like he was like, "Oh, okay. So you would be okay if everybody." 
was like paid the same amount and one hapless student was like yeah i mean like i i guess and then he was like what if a surgeon and a construction worker were paid the same would you be okay with that and i think that scared the student sure. off and i was like oh man you know I, honestly i might have been scared off too i wish i could imagine myself standing being like yes you know because the labor they put out is all the same and you can't really attach you know monetary value but i'm also like I want an A. <laughs> that, that, that is also the most like elitist uh, analogy where, yeah, where it's like a surgeon or a construction worker. Like, I mean, sure, it, 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 they're both jobs where if they fuck up, it'll kill people. Yeah. Like, and so trying to say that, oh, the surgeon's more important than a construction worker. It's like, well, you, you guys are in a building right now. Right, like, right, right. Hospital, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like that, Professor. I have a, I have a couple of complaints. <laughs> okay, um, another one is, um, why do you think that productivity growth has declined? Respond with one of the following. New innovations are not that groundbreaking. Businesses in advanced economies have become less dynamic or we are not correctly measuring productivity. And like, I, I feel like all three of them, I can sort of see a socialist viewpoint because like the first one is like, yeah, we do have a lot of useless stuff from capitalism. Like, like, oh, what was the name of that billionaire's son who put out these like ridiculous looking shirts? Oh, oh white coat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm like, okay, that doesn't count as productivity, but it is. <laughs> and then what was the second option? I don't know. I think that's probably one of the most valuable oh. themes to come out of that I mean, family. Yeah. <laughs> Businesses have become less dynamic. Yeah. Uh, again, from a socialist viewpoint, it's sure. like, yeah, or, you're you not. Know, hedge funds. Yeah. You're not like so really making? keeping up. Yeah. People, people really need basic needs now, but you're just caring about like moving wealth management around. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is like, we're not correctly measuring productivity again with the construction worker and the surgeon, the construction worker is valued as lesser just cause he gets less money weirdly enough. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's not how the professor chose to taught this. Right. A lot of this <laughs> seems to be that uh, they want it to be cut and dry one way or the other way, like a right and wrong. But so much of theoretical economics is like, you know, layered in these decisions mean things for everyone. But if we're not going to talk about what implementing capitalism means for everyone from the global south to the elite then how are we actually accurately learning any of this material to begin with you know actually what you just said about wanting to get an a i think is especially interesting because you you have to wonder how the education would change if that power dynamic weren't in place right oh actually this is really interesting so columbia has this thing called grade non-disclosure which basically means your employer cannot ask you for your transcript until after you're hired so oh, it's really? like, mm. yeah, and I'm like, this also weirds me out because I'm like, you're, I feel like this is a tactical thing, you're, right, right? right? Because it's to inflate the value of the Ivy League or whatever. Or maybe yeah. it's like a, you already made it, so you can let go of that neuroticism. But I, I don't that's, know. But that's so weird, though. It's, it is very yeah. weird. And it's one of those things that where it's like, this loophole exists because of, like, I would guess that, and this is a conspiracy, but like, rich kid that graduates have terrible grades <laughs> and so companies were like uh no fuck that person and so they're like we're gonna make it so that you don't see the grades necessarily until you hire the person so then they could be like uh these these uh, kids with uh, uh trust funds that got terrible grades are gonna get the job <laughs> as well as the kids that work their asses off to get a great gpa 
Well, the good faith argument they put out is that like they want us to have the freedom to take whatever classes and not worry about like potentially failing and like hold ourselves back, which I'm like eh, that could be a grain of truth. I I do feel a little more like comfortable trying a hard class sure. because of that, but it's like I you know, we've all been kind of beaten down with the idea that grades measure your worth and your value and then suddenly they yank the rug and go like nothing matters here. <laughs> I, I'm kind of I'm kind of mad about that. I'm like, yeah. "No, let me strive for an A." Let right. me see. Yeah. Cuz it no, you, why should what you work for to make yourself a better candidate in the workforce not be considered at these workplaces? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it seems it, it, it seems to have like an altruistic good, which is like everyone should be judged on the fact that they've graduated, not by what they've done there. And it's like, no, no, that that doesn't really make any sense either. I mean, I understand. I don't know. I, I, I might be uh, talking a little bit too outlandishly because I didn't graduate college. But I think that it's one of those things where it doesn't make sense to me to force people to go through a system where you have to pay to get a better job prospect and then when it comes time to get a job, be like, well, I mean, what you actually did in the school doesn't really matter as long as you got through the system. It, it, it just feels infuriating because I'm like, if you guys really did believe that grades, quote unquote, shouldn't matter, why do you help perpetuate a system that allows us to be so like mm -hmm. frustrated and stressed out, like from like elementary to end of senior year of college and whatever? Yeah, why would they still have grades anyway? Exactly. If they're not allowed to... I mean, I guess, you know, you want some kind of metric to um, uh, uh, motivate people, but at the same time... Well, it's what she was saying earlier. She wants an A in the class. So yeah. she, like, to get that, she will do all the work necessary. I mean, not to put words in her mouth, but, like, sure. to get the grade, <laughs> you know, to get a good grade, you want to do the you want to do your best and do the work, and you'll... Education makes uh, soldiers of the, uh, of the working force, not innovators that are trying to improve the working force. And one thing that you need to be to be a good employee is to go, I will do whatever you want me to do. It, you know, it kind of makes me wonder if um, in the kind of Bain consulting uh, corporations of the world, where they'll just hire a bunch of Columbia grads, and then once they actually get the grades, they'll just have a room with a bunch of busy boxes for the D students. <laughs> and then... <laughs> oh, gosh. Even though I mean, like, uh, I feel like if you've if you've gotten into university, even if you're making C's, you're probably still capable of doing ninety percent of the work of the company that eventually hires you. Yeah. I like it's like every cook yeah. can govern, you know. My like first that sort of mentality. Yeah, my first job out of undergrad, I like used nothing I learned yeah, um, I mean, in school. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I'm kind of worried. Like after this, I'm like, ah, okay, I just have student debt and nothing. I'm Learned. At least I'm, you know, having fun. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I, I question mark. Yes, use anything I've learned in college in a professional context. <laughs> like my last job was entirely stuff that I taught myself after school when I was bored. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like, oh, JavaScript and Adobe Illustrator. <laughs> oh well. Uh, going back a little bit to that that productivity question, mm -hmm. I wish they would have also showed a chart of labor's share of the output for us so like between labor and capital which factor is getting more of the national output and it's fallen from like uh, mid 60s percent or so in all the way from the 40s to 1980 
like now it's down over 10 percent so it's had like a steady decline at the same time that they're saying that out that productivity has decreased mm, yeah i i think it's also like uh my professor at the beginning of class he said like there's different frameworks to view the economy you could view it as like it's made up of labor and capital these are the two things but what we're going to approach it is the y equals c plus i plus g plus an x whatever and i'm like oh man i wanted you to talk more about the <laughs> right yeah but the real thing yeah. i think you uh i think you said at one point your macroecon professor like somebody asked him about mmt and then he got really mad oh, yeah he he gets if you ever want to you know waste time in class and not learn about something just get him started on mmt because twice he like went on rants about it and uh i was like after one of them i was like okay well, let's see where this goes so i approached <laughs> him after class and i was like I was really interested in what you had to say about MMT, and I would like to, you know, pick your brain a little bit more. And, like, it was really interesting. I think his talking points were mostly, like, oh, they're using language from the 40s. It's not relevant to this anymore. And it's also, like, and, oh, he gave us a case study on uh, Arge Argentina and the hyperinflation that occurred there, uh, that class. So he was, like, and, you know, literally, you know, this whole class, I've been trying to tell you guys that when you print more money, you're going to get more inflation. So why would they? It's like they're ignoring all that education. I've been trying to read this paper by the Cato Institute, by the way. And I was like, OK, good talk. Thank you. And wasn't, wasn't did, did anyone ask him about Japan? Um, I don't think so. Oh, no, man. What about Japan? A place where they printed a lot of money and there's no inflation. Hmm. Yeah. Also, wasn't the hyperinflation in Argentina due largely to foreign loans? Yeah, I mean, they had foreign denominated debts. Hmm. Well, the story and I was given was that the government wanted people to have money because money can buy things. That was the <laughs> explanation. <laughs> Nothing about foreign intervention or the like. So. No. Well, just for the record, they did have lots of foreign denominated debts, which a government can't print money to just get, over, get rid of. Right. And right. they had like real capacity constraints that made inflation go up. Right. Yeah. Man, you guys should have been in my class. I didn't know any <laughs> of this stuff. I'm serious. Well, I wouldn't say anything. I want an A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, w I would probably not challenge yeah. you because I want the A too. I wouldn't have shown up. I would have missed the class. <laughs> Sorry, I slept in, Stephanie. I really want to show up to, to, to school your professor, but honestly, I, I went to sleep at 2. I was watching a lot of uh, First Amendment audits on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting fellow. And like the weird thing is, at the end, I kind of push the envelope i was like yeah but i mean like i do appreciate the fact that they're working from the basis that money isn't really weird and he was like of course money isn't real it's just that like these are the rules we set and we gotta follow them and so it's like Wait. at least <laughs> at least he acknowledges that right. money isn't real yeah so, which so. is well, good but bad yeah it's yeah. real in the sense it has real effects on people's lives right sure but sure, it's but... not real in the sense that it doesn't take biophysical resources created mm-hmm yeah, and it's, I think, like, uh, physical money in this country is about 3%. The, I think that's, like, 96 or 97% of it is digital. So, it's, yeah. you know, it's real in that it changes everyone's lives. Oh, and for it sure. dictates how we all live. But it is numbers on screens. Mm -hmm. You know what's mm -hmm. actually real? Drink theory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we were due for a drop, weren't we? <laughs> Drink theory. Drink theory. Drink theory. Oh, God. 
So although we, we've been talking about uh, Columbia Business School and some of their interesting way that they're teaching business, I think that uh, we'd be remiss because most of my research was typing in Columbia University uh, racism and uh, rape and then the uh, bing exploding every time I do that because <laughs> literally every year there is a new uh, issue of uh, abuse going on between uh, bigotry and uh, sexual assault. Uh, a, a student was recently uh, stabbed in a park near Columbia and uh, a foreign exchange student a few months before was robbed in the same location and when he went to the police the police were like ah those kids doing that are teenagers so we can't do anything so columbia and the police aren't doing enough to protect the students that are at the university and you might be wondering well well why not and uh well some of the students uh react kind of like this we built the modern world we built the modern world europeans europeans built the modern world we invented I think this is Adam Friedman from Cumbtown. <laughs> if you look at and you want to tell us to stop because oh my god we're so bad. We're, we invented the modern world. I feel you. You're so dumb. We invented the modern world. Yeah, so this is uh, from 2018. A, a Columbia University student goes on a uh, drunken rant about how uh, Western Europeans have invented the modern world. And I think later on he says, we saved a billion people from starvation. Oh, you fucking degenerate. We saved billions of people from starvation. <laughs> we built modern civilization. White people are the best. How do you not notice? There's like five people with cameras pointed at him. <laughs> like, how do you? Oh, and don't worry. Uh, after this uh, re- released and became viral, he let everyone know he's not a racist. So oh. uh, he just ha- he just thinks everyone should have pride in the race that they're from. He's mm. doing the Michael Richards circuit. Now. Yeah. Really? <laughs> <He went on. laughs> so, um, yeah, and there have been uh, a, a lot of uh, settlements due to uh, sexual assault between students and some with professors. I mean, you know. These individuals are paying to get an education, and some of them are being uh, abused by other students or other professors. Uh, there have been a whole bunch of cases with uh, Bill black Murray students. From Ghostbusters. <laughs> black <laughs> students being uh, um, profiled by police. And, like, you know, the, the thing that's so nuts is that, like, each story that happens every couple of months or every, every year or so kind of makes the old ones slightly more forgettable. Which is so unfortunate. Like five years ago, there was a famous case where a woman was sexually assaulted, or I believe she was raped, and then she carried her mattress everywhere she went as a mm-hmm. activist protest. Mm-hmm. Now, part of the thing that's interesting about that is that was her thesis at Columbia as well, was this performance, this activism pr- pr- uh, protest. And um, I don't know why that it being a part of her thesis is interesting to me, because it makes it it doesn't cheapen the fact that she's protesting the fact that the, the university wasn't doing enough about her rape case. But then if you look at what happened, they settled with uh, her and the uh, person accused of rape because he was like emotionally traumatized by people handing out flyers being like, this person raped me. I mean, it's being mishandled left and right. And you have 19 people that graduated from the cesspool and are billionaires. So if you ask me, it's one of those things where Columbia University has a lot of uh, growing and and uh, mm-hmm. figuring out how to be a better entity that tries to teach people academia and to stop being a place where bigotry and uh, sexism are rampant. Yeah, and um, I remember during orientation they also tried to emphasize like we follow Title Nine, mm-hmm. you know, and we are mandated legally mandated to report stuff and so on and so forth. But like Title Nine has problems of its own. I feel like the problem of this sort of, you know, rape culture to be 
very candid is is it's very systemic it's at the root of things but right. once again Colombia says okay let's take the liberal approach we're going to do title nine and we're going to focus on punishing those who did it like uh this is a brief aside but like i was at a Colombia party um last halloween and i was wearing like a costume and there was like this guy and he was kind of drunk and like i don't know if he was from cbs or just a random bar patron he seemed mm. like he's he was from cbs though so he comes out he's like whoa are you a diva or whatever mm -hmm. and then he like physically lifts up my arm to like look at my costume cool. yeah i know it was very weird i like barely knew him or i, I didn't know him yeah, at all. yeah it's a stranger at yeah. yeah and then he he like drops my arm and walks away and i was like i'm okay like it, it wasn't awful i mean it it sucked but like what concerned me was like this is the sort of mentality that mm -hmm. creates these sorts of instances and i don't know if colombia is addressing the mentality rather it's just they look at the after effects and they're like okay we just need to double down but it's like it starts with like guys who are just thinking oh i can lift up someone's arm to look at their costume yeah right and it's you know they want to put a band-aid over you know literal stabs and it's like mm -hmm. it's not going to work and you know the issues that Colombia is facing are problems that are happening in every organization, in every country. Um, but with Colombia specifically, people are paying like thousands upon thousands of dollars to be subjected to this bullshit. I think it's also the mentality of like, I'm the new world elite. Mm -hmm. Like for the people doing these crimes? or For, for, for people at, at, at Ivy Leagues in general. Sure. Is, uh, you know, the when, when you... Uh, go to the school that's associated with this uh, mentality that you are um, the best, the best of the best. Right. And you are uh, now part of the ruling class by merit of going to the school. Um, you uh, for especially for, I mean, this guy was probably a, a dickhead before this anyway, <laughs> but I'm sure it only made it worse. Yeah. Emboldened by the, the pedigree of the fact that you belong to a university that um, is supposedly one of the best of the best but i think that the thing that's so frustrating is this the you know one thing we talked about slightly before we recorded was that the hierarchy of this whole thing is so so horseshit like you know the, in this country we seem to recognize that royalty is bullshit and that no one person should rule over others just off bloodline and yet we do it time and time again whether it's students to teachers or whether it's employer to employee and it's frustrating that in the cases that we've been talking with Stephanie today, it seems as if uh, the people that are defending capitalism have blinders on. But not only do they have them on, but they're they're forcing themselves to keep it on as well. Like, it's not like, oh, they are oblivious and they need to be uh, explained a bit more. It's like, no, they like it like that it's this way in a, in a certain regard. I don't know. That's my take on it. Uh, yeah, I think, like, uh, that drunk screaming student, you know, Adam yeah, Friedland. it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's very mockable, sure, but I think definitely I, I, I personally sense a lot of anxiety about like, you know, if I stop thinking this way, I'm going to have to accept that maybe I am not at the top of the pegging order. Maybe right. I should not. Okay, I, I'm going to double down and I'm going to say, and I think that that's at the forefront of many like sort of white supremacist thought that sort of anxiety, that misplaced anxiety that there's... Um, perceiving harm where there is none, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Their points are being taken away of being great. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that applies in the economic sense, and that's why we have uh, econ professors telling me to read Cato Institute papers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've always gotten the impression that there's sort of, like, 
there's almost like a relativistic observer problem in wealth distributions where like if you are extremely high up on the wealth distribution like if if something happens that could possibly make you lose one percent of your wealth uh that harms you psychologically much much more than it would if someone else at the bottom lost one percent of theirs and that's actually part of um drink theory <laughs> if you does that make sense yeah the, the like yeah the wealthier you are the smaller amount of a potential loss it takes to make you go insane <laughs> yeah i think well explain it some more steven i think you're saying that the richer you are the more money it takes the less it takes as a percentage of your wealth to make you just totally lose it and say like these people can't take this they're killing me in my business <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I guess that makes sense because, like, uh, you know, we're recording this on the the second, and like, um, the from where I am financially, paying my rent is a massive percentage of my wealth. Yeah, uh, I mean, that turns over every month. Yeah, yeah, like the wealth tax. Mm-hmm. So, like that, I think they're the reason that they're freaking out so much is, is it's not like the merely a half a percent or something. It's mm-hmm. like right. a good chunk is at risk. Right. And that's why we're seeing, starting to see like the establishment and also billionaires coalesce into a faction against Bernie. Yeah. Yeah. I remember once a friend of mine who was conservative, we kind of like calculated the amount of money that the, the like middle ground, uh, uh, upper middle class would get from the the, like Donald Trump tax cut. And we literally boiled it down to it. It won't do anything for them. They might buy another supercar or something, but like, that extra three hundred thousand or like a million dollars, depending on the group we're looking at, they don't give a fuck. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make their life so much better that a tax cut against them would improve the lives of infinite, uh, infinitely improve the lives of people in the bottom half of the totem pole. Yeah, we'll talk about um, like why isn't productivity going up or something. Like the only stimulus we ever do is tax cuts to the wealthy, right? Mm-hmm. And like that's probably like the least stimulative in terms of like productivity that you could possibly have yeah so like it does does it help growth uh no not really but it does increase the wealth of the top 0.001 percent like substantially and that doesn't result in jobs and it doesn't it results in people creating useful things to do useful stuff yeah and it probably also feeds into this mentality like even if it doesn't uh even even if it's just like a marginal increase to their wealth, it's still like um, uh, an exercise of power for them to get that little to get that tax cut each time mm-hmm. they get that tax cut. You know, it's it's still like them winning and getting getting a little more from everyone. Yeah, I mean that's definitely true. I think that um, them winning shouldn't be at the cost of other people literally dying because they can't afford. Uh, the basic needs of human needs to exist. And um, it's frustrating because it's like, you know, Warren Buffett loses half of half a percent and, it, and it's the it's the world's biggest yeah, like fucking the wor- tragedy. The, the world's ending if you lose half a percent right. of your wealth. And Whereas like someone in the middle class or lower would be like, um, okay, but I got free healthcare. So. <laughs> right, right, yeah. I think it's like just this idea of like you earned it, right? You earned it, so now you get to play around in it. 
like grade non-disclosure we've earned our <laughs> yeah, way right. and now we can just mess around and take whatever classes and not worry about grades but it's like you know i don't know i'm like sometimes it's gonna be a little unfair ah you know much as i would love to live in a world of puppies and rainbows and let you keep your wealth <laughs> fortunately people gotta eat and yeah. we gotta live so sorry man fork it over and uh, puppies and rainbows exist regardless of how much money you have <laughs> <laughs> oh we'll see about that <laughs> and climate change could kill off rainbows for all time that's a good point you do need water for cl- uh, rainbows to exist oh um, i meant puppies oh i i do want to mention a couple more things oh of course uh one piece of local news related to CVIs, um, they've been expanding. Mm, Manhattanville, so, right. Yep. <laughs> so I guess you've already heard about it. I'm sure everyone's talking. Uh, yeah, we got this uh, new Dean, Dean uh, Margolis, and he's very, very pro-Manhattanville. Really? Like, yeah. So they're, yeah, they're expanding their facilities into a neighborhood called Manhattanville. It's near Harlem, or in mm-hmm. Harlem. Mm-hmm. And let's see, I think it's six billion dollars. Wow. Yeah. Of development. Um they've used they've actually used imminent domain a few times to to get people to move out so that they could develop. I actually um I feel that Manhattanville area is actually getting pretty gentrified whenever I walk there. Like I already see like a few luxury apartment buildings and so on and so forth. So times are changing. Well like having the introduction of a business of an elite business school. Uh, is probably going to drive up rent oh, yeah. prices For as sure. you know. As this suddenly you have this amenity of a bunch of elite people with lots of money mm-hmm. living there. Right. Yeah. Do you notice like amongst your um, classmates like that mm-hmm. there tends to be kind of a, a people raised. Uh, um, in more like you know wealthy backgrounds. Oh, for sure. Oh my God. So like before school officially started, there were a lot of like summer programs that were like, oh, come and hang out with your classmates. And there was this thing called Yacht Week, right? <laughs> I'm I'm being completely serious here. You like pay a, y- yachts. Yes, you pay a lot of money, and then you go on a week on a yacht with your fellow Columbia Business School students. Hilarious. And That's perfect. No, and they had like an ad for it and everything. And it was like those Firefest ads where it's just right. like, oh, you see all those beautiful people cavorting around. And it's like, oh, you know, Yacht Week. It's going to be great. And there's drinks and there's food and beautiful people. And I'm like, I can't afford this. Oh Thanks, God. guys. No, I'm sure I'm missing out on many, many networking opportunities, but... Now, from from the pictures uh, from your classmates on Facebook or whatever, did they match with the beautiful people in the ads? <laughs> I think my uh, classmates are generally like a good-looking bunch. I guess when whole. you got that much money, yeah. Are they are they so? A lot of them are from wealthy backgrounds. Oh, I I would say so. Um, I mean, there are a few who like also can afford to go to Yachtwee and like there's, but there's like regular class trips planned for like, oh, we're gonna go to Cancun, we're gonna go to Rio de Janeiro, we're gonna go Little St. James, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna go to Korea, and I'm just like, how are you finding the money to do it? And it's just there's such a strong disparity with these people, and like I've visited a few of my classmates' places, and they all live in like really nice luxury apartments. Right, they definitely. I think they have money, and probably because the people who want to go into consulting and night banking, they already come from wealth because they were doing consulting and night banking. They graduated 
Like it's mm. just elite feeding upon elite right. and, and perpetuating. Yeah. And, yeah. and their parents that are footing the bill most likely know that if they don't pay for these things that they can't get the networking opportunities that they're mm-hmm. paying for. So it's like, you know, it's the extra, the optional luxury package of buying a supercar for them. It's like, well, it's an extra 20 grand, but I'm already spending uh, the amount of tuition I might as well spend the rest on them going to Cancun and Korea and Yacht Week. I mean, the fact that they have something called Yacht Week and like, <laughs> and it, like, like you're describing, it's like a fire fest advertised activity. Like, it just is, it's so blatant how business is ripe with the worst part of capitalism, and yet the people in it don't even recognize that. It's like one step removed from bring the help to class day. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so we have like a group chat, right? And I saw a message a few days ago from a classmate that's like, anyone who can recommend a good cleaning service for me? And like they were swapping tips down below. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And like, wow. and also the Yacht Week, it's not even the half of it. There's also a thing called Hamptons Week where you like <laughs> room with people in the Hamptons. It's, this is... it's a lot. <laughs> so like, um, business school students are tend to be like a little bit older than like um, like a normal master's program. Mm-hmm. I think like they've yeah. already, if they have been in business before, they've already kind of been doing it for like mm-hmm. I don't know, like five or six years or something. And like I know that a lot of the ones that come in have already been on Wall Street, mm, or yeah. if not Wall Street, then some other like Fortune five hundred group or something. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So like they have money from that. And then you're telling me they also mainly come from wealthier backgrounds. And you've got Yacht Week going on. I mean. <laughs> I mean, Hamptons Week, buddy. Come on. like, What is this? Money begets money. And if you have the most, you got to spend the most to appear like you can have the most tomorrow. I will say, though, <laughs> in terms of Hamptons, off-season, very affordable. Really? <laughs> uh, Montauk, at least. Yeah. You got a bunch of empty like uh, beachside hotels because no one wants to go there when it's thirty degrees, and I'm like, well, I want to go there when it's thirty degrees because it's a nice hotel room for like hundred bucks a night. Well, we we can go there and just pretend, you know. Yeah, we'll, we'll make our own uh, yacht week. We'll we'll stand in a bathtub, fill it with water, it's like, right, right, splash it around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have a Roomba deliver you a drink. You know, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah so buy I, a souvenir boat that says the end and put it near the bathtub. I have to, I would be remiss to not mention that uh, Epstein does come up in this the saga of Columbia University. Hmm. So uh, this isn't the business school, but a former dean of the College of Dental Medicine, he accepted $100,000 from Epstein to research whether dentists could help in the early detection of diabetes, <laughs> which, you know... <laughs> Yeah, if your te- if your teeth are rotting, you might have diabetes. That's uh, yeah. Fair they, so apparently, you might be able to diagnose diabetes doing that, which is good. But maybe you should vet your donate your donors a bit more closely because, like, this was in 2011. Mm-hmm. So Professor Lamster, who was the former dean of the the dental college, he says, "quote I was introduced to Jeffrey Epstein in late 2011, as best I can recall." by one of my faculty members who was his dentist. Lamster told BuzzFeed News by by email. He goes on to say, um, quote, I sent him a thank you message, but he had no other substantive communication with him at that time. I inquired about his background and learned that he had a conviction and subsequently paid his debt, Lamster said. Hmm. He was not in the news during the time that he and I were in contact. 
Okay, but you just <laughs> you just said that he was convicted, and you probably know why he was convicted. Right. Yeah. So, like, why would you still accept money from this Listen, guy? Listen, it didn't make me look bad. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, well enough known that I would look bad when I was taking money from him. <laughs> he wasn't in the news. I mean, yeah. you... You just admitted that you knew that he was convicted for what he was convicted for. Yeah. Which was yeah. being a sexual predator. How much money did you give him? A hundred grand? hundred thousand, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean... Which I suppose for Epstein is jump change, but like, come on, man. He was in the news. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie was saying she encounters all these bizarre acronyms. So one's ZOPA, <laughs> which is Zone of Possible Agreement. Yeah, I'm taking and a... Like, I'm taking a managerial negotiations class, and I've only did one class so far, but I learned two important acronyms. The first one is ZOPA. So when two people are negotiating, you know, you're like, you have a point where you're like, okay, if you don't go lower than this, I'm going to walk away. Right. Or like higher than this, I'm going to walk away. And when the two people have an intersecting point where it's like, we're okay with $10, we're okay with $20, that's your ZOPA. Right. And the point is like you push pull in the ZOPA to get as much distribution on your end. Right. And then the other acronym is BATNA, Best Alternative to Negotiation Agreement. So if it's like, okay, you're not going to meet me at the ZOPA, I'm going to do my BATNA, where it's like I walk away and do something else instead. Right, right, right. So it's like you need to make sure you know what your BATNA is before you come into a negotiation so that right. you're able to leverage and blah, blah, blah. But like, yeah, weird weird acronyms so so with batna is basically an acronym for uh, other option yes <laughs> plan b yeah yeah option b and zopa is just haggling right it's just figure out figuring out where you want to talk to well i guess that's just like the range in which you intersect with the other person yeah yeah, yeah. Like, but sometimes so... you can't have a zopa sometimes people's like limit is not in your limit right so okay. but yeah i'm kind of like why don't you just say normal words i don't know <laughs> but i yeah like it doesn't even have like a um uh in terms of jargon it doesn't even have like a functional reason where like it, you have to use ultra specific words mm -hmm. uh in order to convey the idea it's just it, it seems like it's uh um it's it's an acronym that's created to create an acronym <laughs> yeah, well, it's a hierarchy of language. If you come into a situation and you describe something with these terms, then other people that have gone through these programs will be like, oh, that person knows what we're talking about here. It's, it's, um, you could go in and say what Stephanie said in plain English, and people would be like, ah, sure. But if you're like, oh, this is the bad and that's the Zopna, and people are like, wow, this, this, this person's like <laughs> yeah. really impressive. I, we should listen to them. Yeah. I mean, you get that in like quantitative stuff too. Like, mm -hmm. uh, when you talk about derivatives. Right. And uh, commodity, well, commodities, I guess it's a little more approachable, but I don't know. Oh, like a discount rate and stuff like that. Right, right. Yeah. But uh, if anybody wants to hit me up, I could give you a crash course on all these annoying terms. <laughs> at least you can, you know, like, honestly, it is actually pretty simple. They just make it more complicated than it needs to be. It sounds like it. And with that, this is from Gross Takers. I'm Yogi Powell. I'm Eddie Palmer. I'm Steve Jeffries. Uh, Stephanie, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. This was such a pleasure. <laughs> All, right. All right. See you later. Drink theory. <laughs>